Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Today on In the Know, I have Warren Hatch, the president of Good Judgment, Inc. Warren's a super forecaster, kind of person made famous in Philip Tetlock's bestseller, Super Forecasting. He joined the Good Judgment Project competition run by Tetlock a few years ago and turned out to be one of the best at making predictions about the future. Before that, he was a Wall Street and hedge fund analyst and investor and a PhD in Russian policy. Let's hear what he has to say about making good judgments, foxes and hedgehogs. Hi, Warren. Hi, how are you? It's Good Judgment, isn't it? It is Good Judgment, Inc. Good Judgment, Inc. It is my pleasure to have you. Sounds like you've made a career on this topic and are probably one of the leading experts in the world. That won't come out of your mouth, I suspect, having gotten to know you a little bit. But I I think it might be true. I would not go anywhere near that distance. I have the good fortune of working with people who are experts, including Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers, who ran the Good Judgment Project, and uh, Terry Murray, who was the project manager and now the CEO of the company, and all sorts of other people. So in true super forecasting style, I'm benefiting from a really talented team. I'm able to make my own contributions because I've got my background to be sure, but I wouldn't claim any special expertise in the way that those folks can. Where I might be able to claim some expertise is more on the practical side, of you know doing forecasts because I came up through the ranks as a volunteer in the research project it was horrible in the first year by the way so I'm exhibit A that you can get better and I did get better and joined the was invited to join the ranks of these of the super forecasters and then I've been helping build the business the last couple of years uh, to translate those kinds of skills into the real world and that's been really quite exciting. That is exactly the kind of answer I would have expected from the detailed profile uh, in, uh, and I guess both in the super forecasting book by Philip Tetlock and his earlier book, uh, Expert Political Judgment, but certainly at the end of the Good Judgment project, which involved lots of folks competing over quite a duration, uh, there was a pretty detailed profile. And I think the profile is somebody who is very modest about their capabilities and very interested in the points of view of others. And you gave the exact personal characterization to a T, I think, that one would expect from somebody who did well in that, in that project. I think that's an, an approach that I'm sure is shared by a lot of my colleagues uh, in the company and among the super forecasters, to be sure. And maybe another way to think about it, too, it just occurred to me, is I don't know about uh, modesty, although it's, uh, it's nice to hear that, but uh, uh, one of the things that you learn if you haven't already by going through this kind of process and getting this kind of feedback is that when you are overconfident about something, you get feedback pretty quickly that you are making forecasts that are way too optimistic to match with reality. So you might be saying, oh, well, sure, this kind of thing is absolutely going to happen, 90% odds for this. And you go back and find that across 10 questions where you've made a 90% probability estimate, maybe they've occurred only four or five times. And so you get that feedback and you recalibrate yourself. And maybe that's the way to think about it is that uh, people who are better calibrated may appear modest to others, but really aren't. Let's get there by backing up and finding out how you 
got to the Good Judgment Project and explaining what that is, but let's start at the start. I mean, I guess uh, recently academic profile. You, uh, I mean, you're a PhD in politics from Oxford and you studied, I guess, uh, Russian history or Russian policy and, and history before that. And I guess you got to where such people normally go, Wall Street. <laughs> yes, it sounds like an odder path, but it's actually one that uh, others have been on. Um, I was uh, doing a PhD, and it was always my intention to do things outside of academia. And at the time, I was studying the Soviet Union and then Russia, and basically the whole subject area that I had been studying disappeared. So I went from being a political scientist to a historian, and uh, the options that were out there at the time were pretty limited, all in all. And it was right at that time where somebody gave me really good advice was to go to Wall Street, where people with a lot of different backgrounds can often find good traction. And I had the good fortune there of, uh, of arriving at a time when um, someone at Morgan Stanley in the asset management side was looking for somebody to join this global asset allocation chief investment office, and that's what I was able to do and learn the ropes there. That's certainly true. And I remember the 90s, there was this feeling of ebullience on Wall Street and a very open-minded search process in bringing talented people in, whether they were hardcore math people or physicists or all the way on the other end, deep in the humanities. And I guess it was the age, you know, the sort of decade after Michael Lewis's famous book about liar's poker. I myself was studying philosophy back then, and I almost joined one of these big banks doing something along those lines. Did you find that that was in the air and that when you showed up, you were treated like someone they really wanted or as someone a bit odd or bringing an unusual talent that they couldn't find inside the best? Part of it was a kind of a narrow role, too. The role itself was uh, designed for someone with my background, so I was lucky in that sense. But, but yeah, certainly when I, was, when, when I came in and for the, for the years after, there were, there were quite a few people who came from very different paths and ended up in the industry. I don't know if it's uh, – I suspect I would not go as far <laughs> today because the industry is just so much different and the number of positions is a lot smaller than there used to be. But I still find, because I've got a lot of colleagues still in the industry and uh, do a lot of business now um, uh, with uh, with finance and certainly find people coming in from very different backgrounds still, maybe just not as much, and they're moving on to other things. And uh, so maybe I would have ended up in a circus instead if I were starting today. <laughs> Did you show up as a specialist or a generalist with your doctorate in Russian policy? I was able to present as a specialist, as I, I wrote a dissertation, I did all that. So I, it's almost like a marathon. If you do a PhD and write a dissertation, it shows that you can do this. But the actual position that I was hired to do was very much a generalist. And uh, so by having skills, demonstrated skills, that I could take a deep dive when I needed to, while speaking to a general audience was a nice combination. Uh, and the assignment really was to help in the sort of post-Soviet European market situation. You had to like read Russian and travel around and ask people things. Oh, no, not even that specific. Much more general. So my original job was with Joe McAlinden, who was the chief investment officer there at the time. And one of his jobs, among many other things, was to write a quarterly newsletter to retail and institutional investors. And he didn't have the time. He had so many other things that he had to do 
that what he did was hired me and a couple of others as well to basically draft his ideas onto paper and do that as basically a first draft or a second draft that would then become a quarterly newsletter. Funny thing is that about six months in, I went to Joe and I go, so uh, this is great. I'm having a great time. I'm learning a lot. I think I should learn more and I should go and get uh, an accreditation with, as a chartered financial analyst. That's kind of the union card for, for finance. And he goes, well, he encouraged me to do it, but he says, but really you're worth more to me knowing less about the industry because then you can translate to people who don't know as much. So I thought it was quite mm. interesting is that he put high value on the generalist skill of translating complex topics to an audience who are not specialists. And so you carried on like that. I guess you did the CFA in your byline, and you carried on like that, moving between generalists and specialists for the firm for some time? Yeah, so that role of writing a quarterly newsletter continued, and, and I was able to continue my contributions along with the other members of the team and, and all of that, but also got more involved with uh, the more Wall Street side of things, including being an analyst and then a portfolio manager and, mm -hmm. and, going, mm -hmm. and going from there. All right. And at a certain point, I guess you thought it was time to move on from Morgan Stanley. Was that before or after this good judgment project? So um, what happened was Morgan Stanley had changes. Uh, new leadership came in. Uh, they had new priorities. There was a nice opportunity to uh, join Joe in launching a new hedge fund that started inside Morgan Stanley, ran it there for a while, and then took it outside and and ran it uh, there. Did quite well. It was a very innovative strategy that had been gestating in Joe's process for decades. And we were doing well. We had nice seed capital from Tiger and others. Then had the very poor luck of having our prime broker, basically the banker for the hedge fund, uh, was Lehman Brothers. So when they went under, uh, our fund assets were frozen. Oh, and wow. it was while they were frozen, so we made the decision, rather than to sell off the claim to funds that would pay pennies on the dollar, that we would instead work to recover client assets and did that. But while we were doing that, we needed to pay away, have a way to pay for the lights. And we just kind of repositioned ourselves from being an investment fund, investing on our ideas, to be a boutique research shop selling our ideas for others to invest on. And we did that for some time. And it was while I was doing that that I recalled that Phil Tetlock had written a book that I really liked, Expert Political Judgment. And I was curious what he was up to and went over to his website. Turned out he was launching a new research project down the bottom. He was inviting people to come and be a volunteer to forecast on geopolitical events. So I thought, oh, that sounds fun. Sign me up. And that's how I got now, involved. I came to that book more recently. Of course, uh, a few years later, he wrote the very popular book, Super Forecasting. And there is a passage in that book, which is about making good decisions and actually finding people who make the best decisions, super forecasters. And I guess he was reporting the results of his research project that, that you had joined. There's not a lengthy passage, but there are a few bits where uh, he, he contrasts foxes and hedgehogs. Going back to the earlier book, Expert Political Judgment, 
he spends quite some time and energy actually on those two modes of thought and he sort of lays it out. He goes back to the Isaiah Berlin essay, Archilochus fragment, and fleshes out what one might mean, the other might mean. He surveys a bunch of people, he asks them to self-identify, he checks their performance and stuff. And in that book was the first time I came across a really serious treatment of what I think in philosophy had been a pretty loose and attractive idea that feels right. You sort of see it in yourself or other people, and, and it sort of feels like it's descriptive of the world. And, and in that expert political judgment book, you see a lot more things, sort of markers and explanatory drivers. It got me real interested, and that's part of what got me to you. And I guess the way we met each other now, now that you're laying it out, is, is through that project that he was kicking off at the end of that book, Good Judgment, the Good Judgment Project. Can you uh, sketch out what that whole thing was and what it meant to be part of it and what was he trying to do, but what were you trying to do? Why were you playing this difficult game that he set up? Yeah, well, at the time, I knew basically nothing about what what the project was about and what they were trying to do. I just thought it would be fun to forecast on geopolitical events. This was right, uh, by the way, after Intrade had been shut down, which was a uh, political the betting, betting site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was looking for something else that would kind of scratch that itch, and that was right when. Had you been playing started. around on Intrade and and making bets about whether Putin would make it through some Chechen insurrection and things like that? Oh, I I certainly did. Yeah, there I think there are quite a few people on Good Judgment who uh, who who uh, cut their teeth on Intrade and things like that. Yeah, and but did you make money on it too? Was it an actual place that a lot of money was moving? I made a little bit of money. I think some people made more because they really focused on it. I was just happy if I made enough to kind of keep things amusing and entertaining. I didn't see it as a major money opportunity. It was a fun way to get feedback and make forecasts and have a blast. And But there were a lot of market inefficiencies in in-trade. And, and actually, it was, a, it was a good lesson for how we think about prediction markets. I found a perpetual money-making machine. didn't make a lot, but it made a little bit each and every day for months. And there were questions that asked about the U.S. economic outlook. And every day at the end of the day, or every morning, I should say, early in the morning, Europeans would wake up and they'd be really negative on the U.S. outlook and bid everything down. (laughs) So I had program (laughs) trades for that. And then as they started winding their day down and the American, North Americans woke up, they were quite optimistic and bid everything back up. So I just had little program trades that would trade against those the, the, the shift in sentiments that went on each and every day for a long period of time. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. And did you spend a lot of time on this? I mean, you were basically part of a hobbyist community, sort of like the homebrew computer club where Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs first met. Right? I mean, you were, you, you're sort of a nerd about a thing where you were able to meet these other nerds and play a game with them and be in the rankings and get reward. I mean, were you soaking up a lot of time or it was just one of your your sort of idle moments projects? I mean, if you're writing software, this isn't just like a, a five-minute thing every week. Yeah, yeah, it was nothing fancy going on. And I didn't spend a, that much time on in-trade and I didn't interact much with the uh, the other people there, which was mm-hmm. an error because as I learned in the first year of Good Judgment Project, Uh, So they had a number of different conditions that they tested. Some people were all on their own. It's like they were living in a Skinner box, had no stimulation, no nothing. They had no idea what anyone else was doing. Others were put on prediction markets, a lot like in trade, more or less. And others, and this is where I was, were put, they were put on teams 
on teams, you have an opportunity to exchange views with people, probe each other's reasoning, really accelerate your for own forecasting process. And in the first year, I didn't do that at all. And I, I would just parachute in, see a bunch of questions, click, 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 done, and come back. So I had horrible results. But the thing is that some people on my team, they interacted, they made comments, they commented on each other's comments, questions would close, and they'd spend a little bit of time saying, well, what went right, what went wrong, and they'd post that. Then they disappeared in the rapture. And they were the ones who were carved out as part of this initial group of super forecasters, which was not part of the original research design. They just observed some people were consistently better at making probability estimates than others. And they were curious to see how they would do if they were put on a team. And so those people were part of it. By the way, they spent a fair amount of time, to be sure, more than I was, uh, but they did not spend 10,000 hours. They got to be super forecasters uh, much faster than that. But it still takes a fair amount of time, takes a fair amount of effort. And that's what I started to do in the second year. I started to do what they did. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, but that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Just to back up for a, just one paragraph, the project itself was Tetlock, a researcher at Penn, deciding to figure out if he can run some kind of big, broad, multi-participant study that poses questions to folks every week, I guess, and asks them for answers and then evaluates the accuracy of their answers over time, something like that. Oh, yeah. sure, yeah. So as I yeah. learned later... Uh, yeah, so that's uh, so the Good Judgment Project was run by Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers, and they were one of five university-based research teams invited by the U.S. government to see if there are ways to improve on the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community was looking to see if they could improve on their own forecasting success. They had uh, some... Uh, unpleasant forecast errors of their own, and so they were remarkably open-minded about seeing if there were ways to do it better. No one really knew. IARPA's mission is to do speculative research of that sort, and it turned out the other teams did not do very well. Good Judgment did phenomenally well for assorted reasons, and uh, that's because they, I think it's fair to say, they took a very open-minded approach in their own research. They didn't come to it so much with a single big idea 
to test. They came with a, a series of propositions that they wanted to see if individually this will help make a, for a better forecast, that might make for a better forecast, this not so much. And all these small little things that make incremental improvements, when you put them all together, add up to a pretty phenomenal jump in accuracy that walloped the other teams and indeed beat the intelligence community on the same questions by 30% accuracy. So you were competing against the government spooks. Well, this is something we learned later. So originally it was a four-year research project. Two years in, the sponsor of the U.S. government concluded that uh, the other teams had done what they could do, and so they shut down the formal part of that competition, deployed more resources to team good judgment to try out more conditions and things, such as more with super forecasters. What we did not know was that uh, they were posing many of the same questions to intelligence analysts with their access to classified information on an internal platform there. And we found out sometime later what the results were. So we didn't know that at the time that we were competing. We found out later, and the results have since uh, been made more public. Amazing. So, so Mellers and Tadlock are running this thing. You join. First year, you do terribly. And you were ticking through a couple things that somebody who is knowledgeable about this topic would realize were big limitations. So you weren't that collaborative, and you didn't think that hard about your questions. You described it as you go through and you go tick, tick, tick. That was the second bit of it. But then there's a third bit that you mentioned that um, folks that were good at it sort of showed up good at forecast. Well, there's some people who are very good at it. I think you want to go in, you make comments, you compare with other forecasters. And then the third thing that for me made a big difference was when a question closes, you now know the answer. So you go back and compare your reasoning along the way to what actually occurred. And that's the feedback. And the feedback is if you get good, rapid, high-quality feedback, that's what really, really moves the dial in accelerating your own performance. You finish up a super forecaster in this four-year program, and in the first year, it sounds like you weren't very satisfied with your outcomes. But at the end of the first year, you changed? And how quickly did you see change in your own performance as a forecaster? Yes, at the end of the first year, I was I wasn't at the bottom of the table, but I was you know, not not looking so good. I did better in my high school art class, and I did not do well there. Um, <laughs> but in the second year, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to take it more seriously. Started to do the things that uh, those teammates who who went on to become the first super forecasters were doing. It was about twenty twenty five questions in which is, oh, I don't know, three, four months, something like that, it clicked. And this is something a lot of folks report as well, is about that amount of feedback, it starts to make sense. You start going, aha. So when I assign a 70% probability estimate to this sort of a thing, this is what it should look like. This is what it should feel like. And you start to recalibrate yourself. And then the more feedback you get, the more precise you can become. What does it feel like when you make a, a careful and balanced judgment? It feels like the gear uh, clicked in. So you got, ah, that's it. And it's almost like when you're driving along and you're not quite getting the gearing and then it suddenly does drop in and you get this little momentum that gives you a little push. You go, ah, there it is. I got it. 
But it's not a hard yes, so but it's hard to know what that would feel like. I mean, what does it feel like to give a 70% yes judgment and know that that's better than a 30% yes judgment? It's the feeling that you have your grip against the range of different factors and scenarios that may follow? So you'll recognize similar situations. You say, ah, for this kind of a this kind of a topic, based on this amount of information and so on, and you build it up, it gets you to, it's almost like a feeling. Here's another way to look at it. Imagine you're out in Nevada, and you're cruising down the highway across the desert in a convertible, but the speedometer is broken. And somebody says, how fast are you going? You might go, I don't know, 100 miles an hour? Turns out, no, it's more like 70. And you do that enough, you'll get a feeling for what the speed is that is what the actual miles per hour would show on your speedometer if it were working. And you get that through a lot of feedback to recognize this kind of pace and this is going to be this kind of speed. It's, that's an imperfect analogy, but it's as close as, as I can imagine at the moment that might help illustrate how it feels. That's amazing. So as a person that went from being a pretty good judge, I mean, being a, a Wall Street and hedge fund researcher and analyst and trader for a long time, and then uh, tackling this this new kind of problem, which which involved decision making and judgment, and going from being just okay in a group of really, I assume, quite competitive and qualified people to becoming great. I wonder if you can help me examine this point about foxes and hedgehogs, which is such a central contrast point in the way people operate, the way people think, and it comes up a lot in this decision theory and cognitive traits area about how people make judgments. I mean, you make judgments when you're a great super forecaster as a fox or as a hedgehog or as a bit of each and as a specialist or a generalist. Or Give me a way to think about the concepts of fox and hedgehog in this context. How does this sound? This is, this is kind of the way it landed for me and crystallized for me. Again, listening to a lot of people and their experiences is, well, one thing, and I think this, this is a point that you've made elsewhere, is you can be a hedgehog in some case instances and a fox in others. Uh, the context can be quite, uh, quite important. So if the context is you're trying to come up with the best probability estimate about an uncertain event, you want to be open-minded, you want to be experimental, you want to be incremental, you want to be empirical about the way you approach things, tentative even. You know, and there's on the one hand, on the third hand, on the gripping hand for fans of science fiction, you're, you're going to run out of hands. And that's, <laughs> but that's very important as you think about the different options and the different, way, the different futures we might find ourselves in based on the question that's being posed. If you're rewarded solely for the accuracy of your forecast, that's going to encourage all of those things, being empirical, experimental, because you're going to get scored on the quality of your forecast. Now, that's quite different from when you need to make a decision. If you need to make a decision, the consequences can be quite radically different for different situations. So. If you have, say, if you're forecasting the probability of the use of a nuclear device, you end up with, as a forecaster, maybe 2%, now, right? So that's a high quality probability estimate. But as a decision maker, that 
is a big deal. So when we start thinking about tail risk and tail events and the implications of acting on a probability estimate to make a decision, it's a different skill set that can click in. When that happens, while you want to be open-minded, there's going to be a time where you just need to make a decision and move on, at least for some period of time. And that's when being a hedgehog might be a useful skill. Because to be a leader, all the qualities that make for a good forecaster come across as equivocating, indecisive, back and forth. That's not a good way to inspire others to follow you. Well, you like following hedgehogs, don't they? Even when they make bad decisions. Certainly. Well, right. So imagine, this is my colleague in London has got this great example. So imagine you're in the trenches in World War One, and it's time for you and, and your platoon to go up and over, and your sergeant says, well, you know, I think we've got probably about an 18% chance of surviving uh, the, the day. That's not <laughs> going to get people to follow you. It might be an accurate forecast, but you're not going to follow you're going to say, all right, lads, off we go. Come follow me. We're going to take the hun, right? That's what you need to, in those situations, the situation is different to when you need to take action from when you need to be analyzing it. It's such a good and practical way to think about this question because you could finish up after the super forecasting work and think, well, this is the highest and best thing to aspire to, to be right in a nuanced way. But often the problem is action. That's right. If we think of it as a division of labor, the high-quality forecasts can give you as a decision maker better information and more confidence in the decision you need to make one way or another. If you need to make a decision, let's say, so you want to go into the breach in World War I, right? If the probability of success of the battle is 10%, but a panel of super forecasters come back and says, well, it's actually 80%, that's consequential. Or say you are a hedge fund and the market is telling you the success of this M&A deal is 60% and your panel of super forecasters comes back and says, well, actually it's more like 85% or 15%. You can convert that difference into a present value that adds up to real dollars and cents. If you are, uh, there are all kinds of situations where having a more accurate forecast can give you more confidence in the decision you need to make. And so now after these many years of work, uh, you and some of your colleagues are running a business called Good Judgment Inc. And it sounds like this is the kind of advice and consultative work that you do do now. Is that right? I mean, for Wall Street and for other folks that need to make some difficult choices? That's it exactly. Yeah. So every decision involves a trade-off. And what super forecasting helps you do is to quantify exactly what those trade-offs are. A lot of the time when confronted with two options, the information is so contradictory, so incomplete, a lot of folks will just throw up their hands and say, I don't know, and they'll pick one or go from their gut. Or they may go to an expert, and an expert who's very skilled at telling us how we got where we are, but maybe not so good at telling us where we're going because they don't have a track record and all those things, will say, well, you know, there's a high probability that option A will do better than option B. And so people will act accordingly based on that because that's all that's really available. 
But that kind of advice isn't terribly helpful because how do you quantify that? How do you define that to have a shared understanding of what that means? In one person's head, a high probability might be 30%. In someone else's, it might be 80%. And there's no way to go back and check uh, what the track record is of that person for more often than not. So much better for consequential decisions to put it to a panel of people who's got a demonstrated track record of accurate probability estimates so you can have confidence in the number they provide. They're not just putting their finger in the wind. They're giving you something that's backed up by empirical data. These are people everywhere. I was fortunate enough to be in an environment where I could uh, emerge out of that, but there are a lot of people who are very skilled and in the right environment, they can be identified and improve their own skills inside organizations or all over the place. They're everywhere. That is, of course, the pitch for Good Judgment, Inc., which I hope listeners will dial into and investigate with you. It sounds like an invaluable service. And I, I guess the, the sales pitch is a little bit longer than a single tagline, but I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll find that on, is it goodjudgment.com? Goodjudgment.com and go to goodjudgmentopen.com and can forecast on our public forecasting site. That's the funnel for future super forecasters. We provide uh, workshops where super forecasters show how they do it. We, uh, the super forecasters are available. They engage on client questions on an internal proprietary platform. And we also provide platforms to organizations. So it's the full suite. Warren, thank you so much for being on In the Know with me and talking to me a little bit about Fox's Hedgehog, good judgment and good decision. Well, thank you for the time. It's been a great conversation, and I hope it was interesting. I certainly am walking away with new ideas that I didn't have when we started, so I really appreciate that. 